Welcome to today's co-hosted podcast. I'm Chuck Marple, your host, here with Karen E., my co-host. How are you doing on this sunny Georgia afternoon? Um, it's sunny-ish here in Ohio. It was sunnier this morning. Probably not as nice temperature-wise as it is for you, but I'm doing well. How about you? Good. Well, we're up to about uh, 50 degrees. It's going to go up to 63, I think, today. Maybe a little warmer than that, too. That's not too bad. Well, today we celebrate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. In honor of, of Martin, Luther, Martin Luther King Jr., my shirt today features a major protege of Dr. King, our own Georgia hero, Representative John Lewis. He was known for the phrase, good trouble, necessary trouble. And with what is going on today in our nation, except that a far too many of our ultra-right wing narrative, his words ring true still. Let's take a look at some of those faithful words this man of peace and justice shared with the world. Almost exactly 60 years ago, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. proclaimed in a momentous speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial, a hundred years after the Emancipation Proclamation, and in his words, he said, the Negro is not free. He is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. He continued to talk about how independence and the Constitution but that promise was, and even today, has not been fulfilled. We still see attempts to limit black and brown voting in many of our former rebellious states and the lack of economic and educational hope for far too many. This lack of hope leads to much of the violence we see in cities today. But in a moment, we'll look at, look at he said some more things about that were hopeful. What could be? So, Ken, when you think of Martin Luther King, what do you see? What do you, what, what's your, your, your feelings? Because you're of the generation that came after his death. One of the things that I think about when I think about him was, you know, we were, um, I was on my deployment to Washington, D.C. in 2011, and you were with me. And mm -hmm. that's when his monument opened. And one of the things I love about that monument is how big it is. You know, it just looms over you. And that makes me sort of, that's how I feel about him. You know, he's large and he looms over us sort of watching and hoping and expecting that one day we will get where we should be, you know, not where he wanted, not whatever, where we, we should be. I, I read an interesting thing the other day that really made me think about him a lot and that, you know, in, in his, I have a dream speech, he wasn't just talking about, we all live in the same neighborhood. He's talking about, we have the same level of power, you know, Black and brown people are at the table with white people. It's not just, well, you can live in our neighborhood and not, yeah. oh, we're all going to move away. Like what's what has happened, you know, and it talks, the article talks a lot about how people gloss over that part of it now. You know, black and brown people still don't have the power even close to white people in politics, in education, in higher education, you know, pretty much any institution they don't have that same level of power. And that is what 
I can't get people to understand is what is meant by systemic racism. You're not part of, you're part of the system and you, but you don't see it, but you as an individual, that's, that's not where racism ends. It's built into the system. I, I fully agree. And I think that uh, people don't understand how much that those inequities account for the violence we see because it's a lack of hope. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that and, and what he's saying here too. But he does have hope. And this is at, towards the end of his speech. In fact, it goes to the end of his speech. And um, let's see what he has to say. He said, there's a possible future. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation that will be judged by the color of their, not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. I have a dream today. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my father died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains, in the mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, will we be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God almighty, we are free at last. So he had hope. But we are now 60 years, almost exactly 60 years since he made that speech. I lived through the 60s. I remember that speech. I wasn't as impressed with it as I might as I was after I read it and got a little older and studied it because I was 12 years old when the speech was done was made but it, it does make it make it an, an image on me because by the end of the 60s I was a protester I protested protested against Richard Nixon because he wouldn't debate Hubert Humphrey I was one of college kids that stood up and sang sounds of sounds of silence from Simon Garfunkel when, when he was an, uh, uh, brought onto the stage by Governor Rockefeller at the time. And then there was Kent State. But in between 1968, on that April day when Martin Luther King was cruelly assassinated, we were proven that it's not always peaceful protests that work. We wish they would. We wish they would give the freedom. But of all the problems we face, the biggest problem that, that we face as a country is this unifying across the board. 
we want to be a great nation, but until we recognize that there's still these inequities, and now these inequities have become greater once again, if you looked at the people who were going, doing all this vote in Congress in the House of Representatives, and you looked at the Republican side and saw the lack of black and brown there, did see more women, but lack of black and brown, it sort of showed you the dangers that we're still facing, that enough people elected these generally white men to these positions. And until we can fully integrate everyone into this nation, we are going to have problems like violence and everything because we have not given, and you mentioned it before, about education, housing, all these kinds of things. It's very frustrating. I, I think the, the part of this, like, and I think change happens, it happens on a small scale and that takes forever. And so that it has to be also on a large scale. But I remember a story a couple years ago where I, I feel like it was in one of the Carolinas where there was a, a black man that was sitting down every week with a white man who was part of the clan and they were just talking talking about their families and talking about their upbringing and their background and their beliefs. And, you know, after nine months or so of talking, the white man resigned from the clan because he finally understood it. And I think it comes down to being afraid of what you don't know. And, you know, you, it's so easy in this world to grow up in a predominantly white area. I've, we've lived in predominantly white areas. You know, we, when we moved to Oswego, I'd grown up up until that point in a very, uh, in a probably not a completely integrated area. Our neighborhood that we lived in when I was very small was integrated, but <clears throat> the school that I went to was integrated through busing. And it was how I grew up. You know, my best friend at the babysitter's house was a girl of mixed race. And it never occurred to me that that was problematic. And going to school, I always had black kids and Asian kids in my class, not a big deal. We moved to Oswego and there was one, two black families, I think in the entire city that had kids in school. And I actually didn't like it. I, I felt a lack of something. I didn't, I couldn't put any word to it at the time, but it was a lack of culture. It was a lack of like, it just felt so homogenous and so like boring almost. And so, but I, those kids just were blatantly racist and that was i think part of what was hard for me too like i they would say things that i'm like you can't say that you know you couldn't challenge them on it and i don't know at the adult level if you saw any of that within the school system but it definitely felt different to me and i don't know that i understood it was racism but some of it was blatant racism that i did understand as a middle schooler well at the high school we did have, like you said, we had very, very few students of color. And we had one, one girl who was known among everybody as a bit of a pain, but, but that, and it was black. But somebody had the absolute gall to actually draw a noose on their locker door. And it turned out it was one of my, one of my, my own students who did it. And uh, obviously he was severely punished. But, you know, you go back to the beginning. When I was uh, very, very young, four or five years old, I had this little girl that I played with. 
And she moved away. And two or three years later, she came back. And at that moment, it was the first time I saw color with her. She was black. And yet we had been very close. I had no clue that there was anything different about her color than my color. And the years passed. So we learned this racial thing. One of the things when we moved to Columbus, Georgia here, uh, was right as the pandemic was begun, we started watching this church and we really liked the, song, liked the music particularly and the, the pastor emeritus that spoke, he was really good. But we started noticing things. We noticed that in the, the band, there was one, one person of color that would sing regularly. But all the people came up and did prayers and everything were white. The things that, that the, the, the current pastor said were not that I felt were inclusive. And we did not continue watching them. And I ended up finding out about a little church that's half a mile away, three minutes, sometimes four minutes tops to get there, and found out that it, it believed in diversity. We have a black pastor. We have uh, several members on the staff that are of color. We have a very deliberate integration. The nice thing about this, this church was developed to show unity in diversity. And we just talk, talked about that in a meeting last week. Unity in diversity. And it is the core reason for our existence. And it's, it's an amazing thing. It shows, in fact, what we can have if we're willing to look beyond it. But we are also, we, we, we have missions in our, in our church all over, too. And we have missions within the community and missions outside of the community. And we are pushing the, this mission and this reconciliation, if you want, that, that we have to have. We have to have this discussion. Martin Luther King's point was making discussion. I used to teach that there were three threads of civil rights in this country. There was one called the Back to Africa movement. And that was somewhat big. Uh, Lincoln was actually pushing that kind of thing um, because he thought it would be better off for, the, for many uh, of, the, of the former slaves to go, go back into their roots. Not necessarily the greatest thing for them, but that was consideration. And earlier, they were, uh, Liberia was bought by anti-slavery people uh, as, a, uh, as a place of freedom. And that's why it's called Liberia. But this, this was even before the Civil War, Liberia. But it, it was, it, it was this these, uh, thing of a Marcus Garvey was the big one to push back to Africa in the 1920s. Then there was a working with, together with the white man in the system. And a man by, by the name of Booker T. Washington, you may have heard of, was this one that they thought that we, together, he was one of the founders of the NAACP. And, uh, and it very, very much felt that this was the way to achieve the integration. And there was a third movement. And it was non-reliance on white people. And the most famous uh, beginning person of that was W.E. Du Bois. Uh, he was a very interesting man. He reached his heyday in the 30s, and then he was accused of being a communist and some other things on there. But he said that it's most important for black people to support each other. And that still is true. Unfortunately, 
there's not enough white people uh, that can offset the really negative, the really negative people who are afraid of losing the privilege that they have. That is the fear. Again, every immigrant group that came to this country because they looked like the dominant group at the time, because they looked like that, they ended up setting themselves and initially it's because of slaves. And then, and then as time went on after emancipation, the Italians would come in and they'd have a real hard time, but because they could adapt and blend in, they did it. So every group worked on setting itself above the freed slaves. And that is a sad thing. And it's more than just that. Like, as you were talking, you know, one of the things that I hear people say, and and it, it is 100% true that everybody alive right now, we had no part of slavery. We, we had no part of it. But that doesn't mean that we don't benefit from the system in some way. But the thing that, that strikes me is it's not just slavery. You know, it it's it's the, I forget the doctor's name, but the the father of you know, modern gynecology did all of his experiments on black women with zero pain medication because he felt that they couldn't feel pain. You know, then you have the Tuskegee stuff with different things that have been tested and done to them as a group. And I don't understand how anybody can learn about these things and not be angry that it happened. And that feeling, that pulling, that horrible way you feel inside, that's not guilt. And I think that's one of the things that, that a lot of these people talk about with their concerns with CRT is that I shouldn't be made to feel guilty because I'm white. That's not what's happening here. It has nothing to do with guilt. That feeling isn't guilt. That feeling is anger. That feeling is sadness. That feeling is starting to maybe realize if that had happened to you, you'd be pretty angry about it too. And so what we all, all of us alive right now, what we are victim to is this world that was built post-slavery where black men are to be feared black women are to be used black children are cute until they're about nine or ten and at that point they are dangerous you don't ever want to be alone with a group of black men in the same space whether it's a mall a street a post office anywhere that's terrible they're there to hurt you because if you're a white woman they they want to rape you that is the world that we learn and it's never spoken. It's never said to you out loud. You just pick up on it. You don't walk through that part of town. And as you grow up, you start to understand that part of town is where the black people live. That's why I'm not supposed to drive through there. And you just, you learn these things with nobody explicitly sitting you down and telling you how to be racist. It's just there. You just learn it. And you have to think about that and pull yourself out of that and say, whoa, why did I just react that way when I saw two black men walking towards me? They aren't going to hurt me. There's nothing here. We're, I'm not alone in the street in the middle of the night. Like I'm in a public shopping area. There's other people here. I, I am reacting to this hostile world that I've grown up in where I've just picked these things up that I've never been explicitly taught. And that, that's one of the biggest problems that we're having now that in many states, and Texas and Florida are two of the worst, they want to change the entire uh, discussion of race 
so as not to feel make people feel uncomfortable. But the truth is, history, history, and I know Kim feels the same way. History is meant to make you feel uncomfortable. If you feel comfortable about your history, you're not studying history. You don't understand history. I used to give the example too in my classes about it. I used to say, "Okay, let's let's take a take a clothing store." Not even a big school. We can take any kind of clothing store. And you have four white teenage girls walk in. The staff is going to be there to support them. They're going to be saying, how can we help you? No. And they're, not, they're, they're, they're going to be very welcome on there because they figure they've got the money to do it. Four teenage black girls walk in. If they look like they look like they're well dressed and everything, they're going to get taken care of too. Maybe not quite as quickly as the fast as fast or in the same ways as as the white girls. Four white boys walk in, they're going to wonder what you're doing in here, probably, unless it's got a lot of really cool fashions in there. But you'll have four young black teenagers, male teacher teenagers come in. What happens? And immediately, immediately they're going to be suspect. And the kids all knew this. The kids all knew this. And one of the saddest things, if, if we look at, at race, is race is determinate regardless economic situation. The richest white people have a lot more respect than even people, black people who are richer than they are. And every level from the, from that, that's right. When you look at the, the bottom level, the poorest black people suffer much more than the poorest white people because the poorest white people want to put themselves above. And that is where this ultra right gets its biggest support from out of these people because they have been installed, instilled with a fear, a fear of losing something that they really don't have. Because the truth of the matter is, if we look at the biggest problem in this country, it's economic inequality. Unfortunately, every step of the way, that economic inequality follows black versus white. So I read before we got on, on here, I read an article and it talked about things you didn't know about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and they had this great quote when it was talking about, you know, he, he went to college really early and graduated at 19. And then he went on to the uh, seminary where he was ordained um, and he had a Ph.D. as well. And he said, education must enable one to sift and weigh evidence, to discern the true from the false, the real from the unreal and the facts from the fiction. And that struck me because of what we're seeing right now, you know, like you hear that the the Jews have a space laser that they're shooting at us. Anybody that believes that or that we get bad air from China and we send them the good air, you have to be able to look at that and, and say, this is complete and total nonsense. But if you were homeschooled and your parents didn't believe in evolution and they kind of avoided science other than what you could find in the Bible, you, you might find yourself thinking, oh, that makes a lot of sense. The wind blows it to China and the wind blows it the other way from mm -hmm. China. You know, like, so that really struck me. The, the sad thing on that is that person who said about the, the bad air was considered by many 
to be a hero from his sports exploits. But the truth of the matter that he was used to illustrate almost, and he showed something to, to reinforce stereotypes of the people who actually supported him. Uh, of the, 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 oh, the, 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 the smiling, the, the, the Uncle Tom, if you want. I always, I always felt that, that, that the way he was approaching race issues was he was minimizing and in that much not reflecting the, the, the reality that his own race, his own community was facing. Thankfully, he did not get elected to the Senate. Mm -hmm. But it was closer than it should have been because he was supported by the worst in the state. I mean, there's some people voted for him just because he was a Republican. It had nothing to do with, with race. It had nothing to do against race. It was just, he was a Republican. He's a Republican nominee. We're going to vote for him. That's one of the problems that we face in the South and other states, Midwest as well. Well, if we get back to, to Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King's beginning was a very modest beginning. He became a minister like his father. His father was the, was one was the lead pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, as he later and became, and is our own Raphael Warnock is is today. Uh, but he after his 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 seminary training, all this stuff, he went to Alabama, and he was in a city called Montgomery, Alabama, and he was with the assistant pastor at a small church there. And some of the parishioners in, the, in this church, it was predominantly a, a black church, used to get upset with him because he, they felt that he was talking more about the nonviolence and talking about Gandhi than he was Jesus. But then we get up to, he was the, one of the big leaders of the Montgomery bus boycott. That for one time, one time in this nation's history really showed the economic power of black people. The bus company almost went broke in Montgomery when that boycott appeared. Black people refused, refused to ride on the Montgomery buses until they allowed black people sit anywhere on the bus. So it showed the economic thing on here. The problem is the economics are still in favor of, uh, of white people. And it's sad that, well, it, that, that we, we have to even say that. That goes back to things like Bruce's Beach that we've talked about over the last year at times. And, you know, eminent domain stealing land from black business owners and people refusing to sell land to black business owners or somebody that wants to start a farm. You know, it, it all ties in to you know, post-Civil War, segregation, all of that. Like, oh, you boys can go in the back door sort of thing. Like, basically, we don't want to see you. And even mm -hmm. if you go further back than that, in the beginning of the 20th, 20th century, with what happened in Tulsa, and I read about another same almost exact thing happened in Florida around the same time, mm -hmm. multiple times where where these communities of people came together and they were thriving and they had everything that they needed in their own community. And, you know, except a town hall and they had to interact 
you know, with white people in some places and, and white people always found a way to ruin it. They had everything that they needed to be successful. White people had to go burn their houses down, burn their businesses down. Well, that, that, that goes into the periods of time. If we look at when the greatest dangers of racism came out, they came out in times of black success. After the end of the Civil War, if you participated in the Civil War in any way, shape, or form, you were not allowed to hold office in the South during Reconstruction. So blacks got primarily elected in all the legislatures of the rebellious states except for Tennessee because Tennessee was reconstructed early on. So, and what I had learned about in my time in the beginning was that it was, they, were, they were terrible. They, were, they, they didn't accomplish anything. They just didn't know what to do to govern. The truth of the matter is some of the greatest progressive actions occurred from these black legislators. And they were good for everybody. But because of the, the, the racism, because of the prejudice, because of, of the, the former leaders of the South, what was formed? The Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. We go, uh, go forward to the, to the early 20th century, the 1920s. One of the most popular areas for white people to come to was Harlem. Because it had the best music, it had the plays, it had all these wonderful people. And as long as everybody else was doing okay, it was okay for these black people to be doing okay too. Even though they weren't going to have everything else. Depression hits, boom. And so many people from the South, so many black people moved from the South to the cities, and it changed the whole complex of it. And all of a sudden, Harlem became one of the worst areas to be around in for white people. Because it suddenly became ignored. Suddenly became ignored. Again, Tulsa, that Florida one you talked about, are the same thing. You had thriving businesses, but when the least little provocation happened, we can't have them N-words. We can't have those N-word people being successful and thus not. That is, there's an economic je- jealousy in there. And one that, and, and I can take it even even to give an example how fast we could turn on somebody. Same thing was the Japanese during World War II, before and during World War II. Japanese would come here. They started out working hard, and they they were able to be successful. And the next thing you know, when the war started, all of a sudden they were attacked and put in concentration camps in their own form of slavery. Not as bad and as long as black, as we said before on this forum. We've had slavery in this country longer than blacks have had non-slavery in this country. We had 300 plus years. If you look at the prison system and and how there were states that pretty much anybody that was arrested could be forced into labor, that's a form of slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, Well, you know, you get get to that whole point that... uh, Black people are more likely to be incarcerated for the same crimes as white. At every level. Again, like, like economic, every level. The poorest blacks are going to be in prison at a much greater rate, rate than the poorest whites. And each level as we move up, it still gets to be that. At the very, very top, the, the, the billionaires and the, billion, and the few billionaires, they're, they're relatively safe. But for the most part, 
every other group suffers on that. And a good portion of it is non-violent crime. The single biggest thing is that we incarcerate, incarcerate black people for are drug crimes. And why why are they doing drugs? Because it's a, a way to economic success for them. As well as putting their frustrations away for a little while. Because, again, we go back to one of the things that, that Martin Luther King talked about, and that's hope. When hope is dashed, and if you look at some of the other, spe other speeches, you will see that talking about hope. When hope is dashed, what do you do? You rebel in different ways. There's a horrible book called The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison that talks, it's, it's semi-autobiographical. Um, it's part, it's, it's fictionized biography, if you want, and it talks about the the uh, thing when black person who was given a chance to go forward at the whim of white people didn't follow the mode, uh, the, the 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 direction that he was supposed to. what happened was that the person who had given to him, he gave him a, a note to take to people as a recommendation. And it turned about that basically it said, keep this boy running to punish him for trying to be real. And it's a, a terrible book. If you want to, I, I don't recommend unless you're going to be depressed. Don't, don't read it. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's standard in a lot of courses in college as well. You know, when Martin Luther King died, I was actually had a girlfriend from North Syracuse, New York. And I got on the phone with her, and she couldn't believe I was upset about it. And she used that word, the N-word about it. It's, it's just another one. And I'm like, huh. Here's somebody I thought I knew. We had been out going out for a long time. And I thought I knew her. And, and then that just turned out. We didn't last much longer. We la broke up that month anyways. Um, that was not a major. That was not the only part. But that was part of it, too, as I look back. Yeah. But we see this. We see Martin Luther King looked at what we could be. Sometimes that could be can happen. We looked at his, uh, Desmond Tutu and, uh, oh, no, I can't think of the guy's name that's in prison. You probably remember quicker than I do in South Africa. Nelson Mandela. Nelson, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, who had been, been in prison for a long time. They were able to change the system and make a difference on, on there. And that was the kind of the hopes that, that Martin Luther King said we could be. But here we are 60 years later, and we're not there. We're not where we should be. If somebody would have told me that we would still be so far behind after being after all the protests that that we radicals did, unfortunately, some a lot of these we radicals are no are radical the other way. They're ultra right now. Um, I would have been very saddened because we thought we had accomplished something. We thought we had 
with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, which the Voting Voting Rights Act has been so minimized by the Supreme Court that that's almost not there anymore. Again, good trouble. John Lewis talked about uh, voting was his his key thing. We we just it's frustrating. So uh, so listeners, on this Martin Luther King's birthday, think about what he said about what was the reality, which for many black people today is still the reality, and what he said could be. And think about how we can change, go, move forward and make ourselves a better nation. And this is one way to do so. So probably the most important one way. Any final thoughts? I A couple things, two things, really. The important thing is to talk about it. Like with one other person in your family, in a group, you know, on, online, if you can find intelligent conversation online, talking about it helps you see other point of views. It helps you get your thoughts out, you know, read. There's so many good books that you can read and, and learn about the past and learn about where we should be headed and, you know, work through your own unconscious bias. Like that's the mm-hmm. big thing is just get that, get these teachings that you picked up along the way out of your system. My second thought is like the hope that I see in the kids, this up and coming generation born in the 2000s these kids they've got it figured out you know they've got friends of all colors flavors types like they don't they i i hear them talk about cultural appropriation in fourth and sixth grade like they they get it they see it they know it they don't they're just friends with people they like they don't they don't worry about color they worry about who likes the same types of things they like who shares stickers with them you know that sort of thing and so I see kids today growing up so much more enlightened than I ever did and so much more aware. And, and I think there's a lot of reason to have hope that as they become adults, that things will get better for everybody, but especially for black and brown people. I, I, I hope you're right. It's, it's frustrating for me, as I said, from what I had hoped as a teenager and early 20s person. And what we've had come as a reality. The problem where I see the frustration, my own frustration is living in the South and still seeing the legislators refusing to face the reality of history. I don't think they have any right to take that away from students. I think we need to need to understand where we become. Does that make us any less a great nation? No, it does not. We are a great nation despite our warts. So thank you listeners on this day. I'll have this posted this afternoon. I'll do this a little faster since it's on me on this day. God bless you. God bless this great nation. God bless our leaders and the good ones need all God's blessings out here there. God bless and protect our troops where they are. Have a great afternoon. Love you all. Bye.